Well, amen. Amen. I think I just found a brand new favorite song. Praise the Lord. I am what he says I am. And if he said it, I believe it. I have to believe it. He said that I'm forgiven. I have to believe that today. He says I've been bought with a price that I am redeemed and and I believe that today. He says I'm seated with him in heavenly places and I believe that today. He says that nothing can separate me from his love. I believe that today. He says that I'm born again. He says that I have eternal life. He says that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He says that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He says that I am an overcomer. He says that I'm more than a conqueror. He says that I am loved and by faith I believe it today. Amen. I sure wish I had some folk in the building today because we would still be shouting right now. But can you shout at home? (laughs) Can you shout at home? home. Amen. Amen. Oh boy. And I got to thank God for our executive pastor, Jerry Lewis, that he got up here and he preached the truth by reminding us about what it means to assemble together. Because we don't have to be in this building to be the assembly. We don't have to be in this building to assemble today. If anything, we're more biblical uh, by meeting in our homes than we are even in meeting in buildings because back in biblical days, they didn't have a structure for people to come into and gather together. The early church would meet outdoors under Solomon's colonnade, which was part of the Temple Mount. They weren't in big edifices and structures. They were in folks' homes. So as you are at home today, you are not forsaking the assembling of yourself together. You just heard a word through the song. I know you're already glad that you tuned in, my God. And because of the blessing of technology, if you tuned in late, you can rewind it back later and watch that song or watch it again. I mean, praise God. I'm trying to make some lemonade out of these lemons that we're dealing with today. Perspective is everything which goes back to faith. Amen. This is the day that the Lord has made. Can anybody rejoice? and be glad in it. Amen. I'm glad. I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful to be saved, clothed, and in my right mind. Thank you, Jesus. He's good. He's worthy of our praise. And not just on Sunday, and not just during church time. Worship is to be ongoing because we are living sacrifices. Oh, boy. Amen. Amen. Well, I I have to lead us in our offertory prayer. But before I do that, Pastor Jerry took the benevolence offering And he explained some of what we do with that offering by way of feeding people, paying bills, helping folks out in the church as well as in the community. But then there is the general offering that we receive every week. And that allows us to do the things that we do at Strong Tower to even pay for this building that we're not able to inhabit since last March of 2020. But God's been so good that we've been able to pay the note on this building every month. Have not missed a bill. Have not missed a payment. The lights are on today because of your obedience to give to God at this local church. Staff members get paid because of your obedience to give to God at this local church. But not only that, missionaries get supported because of your faithfulness to give to God at this local church. As a matter of fact, when I came in today, I had a note on my desk 
from one of the uh, folks that we help out. This happens to be a ministry in Haiti, Trezo, and they have a school there with Bob and Kay Van Fletteren who started this school and who have empowered the local Haitians to lead the school. Uh, Doreen and I have been there. It is a blessing. And uh, we got a note from uh, that ministry. And here it is, Strong Tower. It says, Dear Strong Tower Bible Church family, thank you for the generous donation to our school in Haiti. We are using the money to print textbooks developed by our staff that we can reuse for several years. We have included a thank you note from one of our students. And this is from Messi. And so she made a thank you note to send back here to Strong Tower Bible Church. And on the back of it, she wrote, I love you. Thank you for my school. God bless you. And I like school and I like bicycles. Oh my God. See, y'all don't know. Y'all don't know. This is a note from an angel, literally. And it's just an encouragement to keep doing what you do. Uh, honoring God with the first fruits of your increase in and through this particular local church. And so as you give today, just be mindful that your gifts are being used and redistributed to go out and meet needs and to bless and help missionaries and feed folks, all those great things. So praise the Lord. So let's pray. And I pray that you will give cheerfully, obediently, sacrificially at this time. Father, thank you for this offering that we are receiving virtually. Thank you, Lord, for those of us who are able to give because we have means of income. We've been blessed with the ability to work. We've been blessed with the ability to make money. And as a result, we're blessed with the responsibility to honor you with the first fruit of our increase. We give it back to you because we recognize that it all comes from you. And Lord, we even give knowing we've got bills to pay. We even give, Lord, knowing that we've got things that we need to take care of in our families. But Lord, you encourage us to give, knowing that it will be given back to us. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. We thank you, Lord, that you're the God of not only enough, but you're the God of more than enough. Would you bless the giver today? Would you multiply the seed and thank you, Lord, for the good ground that you allow Strong Tower to plant your resources in. Continue to get the glory. Thank you for our friends in Haiti. Thank you for our friends in Africa. Thank you for our friends who are here at home. Thank you for the work of kingdom ministry, for we ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you, God. Well, as you are turning in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. That's the book of Revelation chapter 3. I shouldn't have to give you much time to find Revelation. You know, that's when, uh, when I go to churches, or at least when I used to go to churches and go preach, and when I say turn to Genesis or turn to Revelation, and if folks are in the table of contents, then I know I've got my work set out for me <laughs> that day in that church. But Revelation, the last book of the Bible, chapter 3, we are in a series entitled Come As You Are, that our Lord invites us to come as we are. We don't have to fix ourselves up, clean ourselves up, because we can't. Uh, he invites us to come. And the only reason we can come to him is because he first came to us and then even extended the invitation to us. 
And so he's a wonderful savior with arms wide open, ready to receive us, welcome us, embrace us, love on us, and then send us back out in his name. So I pray that this series is being a blessing to you. Now, today we're going to look at it in, in, in a little different twist here because Jesus is not so much saying, come to me, but he is asking the church to let him in. So he's extending a different kind of invitation as we're going to see today. So read with me in Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. And the Bible reads, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So today, with your prayers and with the help of the Holy Spirit, Permit me to speak a message today entitled, Let Me Come In. And I take that from verse 20 when Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. So in other words, let me come in. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to learn, to learn about you, to learn about your son, to learn about how your spirit works, even to learn about ourselves that even on our best days, we are still very much fallen and in need of grace. That even though we have been declared righteous because of faith in Jesus, we are yet still very, very wretched. So I thank you, O oh God, that you understand our frame. You know that we are dust. You know what you're working with. But I thank you, Lord, that you put this treasure of the Holy Spirit in these earthen vessels. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Would you teach us today? Would you lead us? Would you help us? Would you comfort us? Would you convict us? Would you confirm? Would you give us courage today even to be obedient and make changes that are necessary? And might we all have ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is going to say to Strong Tower Bible Church 
And to anyone who is part of the universal church who's listening today, speak, Lord, have your way. For it's in Jesus' name that I ask it all. Amen. Amen. The passage that I just read to you from Revelation chapter 3, I believe is one of the saddest passages in all the Bible. It's one of the saddest passages when you look up and you see Jesus standing outside of his own church, knocking on the door and calling, asking to be let in. To me, that's sad. But not only is it sad, it's tragic. This passage is kind of up there with the fact that they had no room for him in the upper room, or, or rather, in, 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 yes, in the upper room, when I preached that during Christmas time, that, that they didn't make room for Jesus' family. And when I read this today, you see Jesus not having room inside of his own church. This is sad to me. You see, when your church is closed to Jesus, your church is in trouble. Matter of fact, your church may not even be a church anymore. It may just be a club. It just may be an organization. In fact, it just might be a clan, and that's spelled with a K. That when Jesus is not inside the church, I'm not sure what you have on your hands. You, you've got a mess on your hands. Now, like the church of Laodicea, like we're going to see in a minute, you, you may have a lot of money, but you don't have a lot of might in your church. You may have a whole lot of people at your church, but if Jesus is not in your church, you don't have a whole lot of power in your church. And I'll take power over a bunch of people any day. I'll take might over money any day. And if Jesus is not in your church, if he's standing outside the doors knocking, saying, let me come in, you might have affluence, but your church does not have influence. You've lost your saltiness. You're being stepped on by men. You're living beneath when God has called you to be above. It's a sad thing. When Jesus is standing on the outside of his own church, knocking, and no one lets him in. I have a lot of questions. I'm like, how did he get outside of the church? We know no one put him out, so he must have left on his own accord even as we see in the Old Testament with Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. Why did the Lord leave this church or at least step outside of it? Well, I've got three questions that I want to ask today, and hopefully by the grace of God, I'll be able to answer. The first question is, why is Jesus standing outside of his own church? That would be like me going home today and uh, forgetting my keys, let's just say. And I'm knocking on the door of my house, and my kids don't let me in. And you ride by saying, man, why is pastor not inside his own church? Well, inside his own house, what's wrong with his kids? You, you won't say what's wrong with pastor. You'll say what's wrong with his kids that won't let him inside of his own house that he pays the mortgage on. Oh, Lord. See, I could chase that, but I won't. That's the first question. Why is Jesus standing outside of his own church? Secondly, what should they do to let Jesus back into his own church? And then finally, 
What are the benefits of letting Jesus back into his own church? I got to keep emphasizing that because the church is built on him. He is the rock of revelation. He is the foundation of the church. Without Jesus, we wouldn't be here. Without Jesus, we wouldn't have life, yet alone abundant life or eternal life. And there would not be a church. But for some reason, we think that we can do church without Jesus. We think that we can do life without Jesus and have the nerve to call ourselves successful Christians. There's a message to the churches today. So let's start with the first question. Why is Jesus standing outside of his own church? And the first thing I see from the text is that the people in the church obviously forgot who Jesus was. Why is he outside the church? They must have forgotten who he was. Because when I look at verse 14... Jesus identifies himself to the church as the amen. He says, I am the amen. And the amen literally means the truth or truly. Uh, So when we end our prayers in Jesus' name, amen, what we're saying is in Jesus' name, it is true. What we just prayed, because we're praying according to the will of God, which is found in the word of God. So when we pray that way, it is true. Jesus says, when you talk to the Father, talk to him in my name. And we say amen, saying, it is true. So there would be times when Jesus would speak to people, and he would put amen on the front of what he was saying, and not just on the back of what he was, he was saying. In the King James Version, this word in the Greek is translated verily. So when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said, verily, verily, I say to you, you must be born again. Or in other words, amen, amen, you must be born again. It is true, it is true, you must be born again. Verily, verily, before Abraham was, I am. It is true that I am the I am. And so when you see amen, it means true. So when we pray, I like this, when I close my prayer, when I'm praying according to the will of God, which is found in the word of God, knowing that God hears me because I'm praying according to his will, which is based on his word, and I say in Jesus' name, amen, I can now say in Jesus' name, Jesus. Oh, Lord, you didn't get that. In Jesus' name, Jesus, because Jesus is the amen. (laughs) Some of y'all come from churches where the preacher said amen a whole lot. I come from one of them churches where you hear a preacher, amen, we are going to a picnic, amen, today, amen, and uh, I got to get in my car, amen, and drive, amen, down the street, amen, because the Lord, amen. What he's saying is it's all true, it's all true, it's all true. So Jesus is wanting to establish who he is with this church because obviously they forgot that he is the amen, (laughs) not the a woman as someone erroneously prayed uh, uh, in the government. No, 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 this is amen, which means truly. It's true. He's true. He's the truth. Then he goes on to say he is the faithful and true witness, meaning that what I'm about to tell y'all, you can count on because it's true, because I am the truth. And it's important for you guys at Laodicea to understand that because obviously y'all been dealing with a whole lot of falsehoods 
and believing a whole lot of lies. So I got to take you back to who is true and what is truth. He also tells them in verse 15 that he is the beginning of the creation of God. Again, when we lose our way, it's probably because we've lost the sense of who God is. Our theology is shot. Our theology is weak. So we got to get back to who God is, his person, nature, essence, and being. And when Jesus says that he is the beginning of the creation of God, this does not mean, as the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, say wrongly, that God, Jehovah, created Jesus and Jesus created everything else. No, 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 no. Uh, Jesus is eternal just as the Father is eternal. The only beginning that Jesus had was in Bethlehem when he chose to become a human while still remaining to be God. He was God in the flesh. He has always been God. He has always been the eternal son of God. Jesus has no beginning. So what does this mean? It means that he is the source of creation. It means that he is the one who began creation. Not that he was created, but that creation came from out of him. This speaks of his power to create, his uh, uh, ex nihilo omnipotent power. He's the beginning of all creation. And if I were to go over to Colossians, when Paul deals with a similar thought, he's basically saying that Christ is the preeminent one over all of creation. So thank you, Jesus. He got to remind the church who he is. But then he also says in verse 15, he says, I know your works, which means that he is the omniscient judge. (laughs) I know what you're doing because I know everything. So Jesus says, I'm the amen, I'm the faithful and true witness, I'm the beginning of the creation of God, and I am the omniscient judge. Not only do I know your works, but I'm going to hold you accountable for the works that you do. So let's get back to who Jesus is. Secondly, the reason why he's standing outside of this church is because the angel of the church wasn't leading well. Look at verse 14. He says, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right? Now, angel, the Greek word literally means messenger. And it could mean an angelic being, uh, one of the stars of heaven, if you will, even based on what we see in Revelation chapter 1, that Jesus held the stars in his hand and the stars were the angels of the church. So that could speak to the fact that every church, uh, because Revelation is addressed to seven specific churches that existed then. So each church has an angel. And so Strong Tower Bible Church has an angel. And so the Lord may be addressing the angel of the church. But I like to take it another way and go a little bit deeper. Because the word angel can mean messenger, angelos, it could also speak to the the chief communicator or the leader of the church, that the Lord is coming to the angel, the pastor, the, the, the primary communicator, and the one that when folks think about the church at Laodicea, they think about the leader that, that is of that church in Laodicea. And according to Colossians chapter 4, verse 17, that leader may have been Archippus, who may have been the pastor of the church. Because one thing I know about God, he's going to always come to the head to get the body right. What do I mean by that? Uh, when things go wrong in my marriage and uh, Chris and Darina are not in sync together. 
Yeah, the Lord holds Darina accountable for her decisions, the things she does, but the Lord holds me accountable and responsible for what happens in the family because the Lord came to Adam first and said, Adam, where are you? Because God always respects order, whereas the devil is the author of confusion, and he does not respect order. So God has no problem going to the leader, the head, the head servant leader, and say, what's going on? Why is the breakdown? James chapter 3 verse 1 says that teachers are under stricter judgment, which is why everybody shouldn't be trying to step up to be a teacher because God is going to hold us accountable for how we feed and lead his people. And if we are not feeding and leading correctly, God is going to deal with the shepherds who are over his sheep. So to the angel just might mean archippus. To the angel of the church just might mean the senior leader of the church, the recognized leader. And so the Lord is coming to him saying, man, if you were leading well, this compromise might not be in this church, at least to the, to the extent that it is. If you were holding people accountable, then this church may not be as compromised as it is. So I'm coming to you, pastor, because you set the temple and the tone in the church, and you must not be teaching right if people can do church without Jesus. So, so you might be more concerned with making friends and even making some money than you are about making disciples. Oh, I wish I could put that in reverse because we got a lot of preachers that's more into the money than making disciples, which means telling people the truth even if they will mistake you as being their enemy. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And so if you are trying to chummy up to people and get benefits because there's a whole lot of money in this church right here. And if there's a whole lot of money in this church, and if influential people in the community go to this church, you might bite your tongue as the pastor and not speak the truth in love. But Jesus says, let me push you aside because I'm the ultimate shepherd of the people. And we're going to see later that he has no problem rebuking people that he loves. He has no problem calling folks to repent. So pastor, you may not want to do your job, but the chief good shepherd going to do his. So why is he outside? Man, the pastor, the angel is bugging. But thirdly, <clears throat> the people in the church became lukewarm. I mean, there it is right there. Look at verse 16. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So there it is right there. Be be because you are lukewarm. And this is Dr. Jesus giving his prognosis of the body. And uh, he's not making stuff up. He's not missing stuff. Dr. Jesus is calling it as he sees it. And he says, y'all are lukewarm. Pastor, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Well, in Laodicea, which is one of the seven areas where churches were at, that John uh, sent this letter, uh, this letter of the Revelation out to, Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, Thyatira, Philadelphia, and, and, and we come to Laodicea. Laodicea had bad water in Laodicea. The, the Lycus River is what it's called. It was a filthy river, and because of that, the water was not drinkable nor consumable. And so they had to pipe water in from surrounding cities. And so over in Hierapolis, which was about five miles away, uh, the people of Laodicea built these aqueducts 
in order to pipe water in from Hierapolis. Now, here's the beautiful thing about Hierapolis. Hierapolis was known for their hot springs. So they had this precious hot water. And so the people in Laodicea were so smart and they had so much money that they built this aqueduct system to pipe the water in hot water. But then over to the other side was Colossae. And Colossae was known for its cold, fresh, pure water. So they built an aqueduct and piped in cold water from Colossae. But by the time the hot water got to Laodicea from Hierapolis, and by the time the cold water got to Laodicea from Colossae, both were lukewarm, both were tepid, and both were not drinkable. Both did not taste good. And so the people would spit out, because here it is. They had an expectation of what they were going to get. So if I turn the hot on from Hierapolis, I expect hot water to come through the pipes. And when you're sitting there and you're expecting hot and tepid comes, your jaws are tight. And if you turn the knob wanting cold water to come from Colossae and only tepid, lukewarm water comes out, your jaws are tight. All right, let's go to a, a restaurant. If you go out to a restaurant, you mask up and you social distance and you say, I want some uh, cold iced tea. Oh, Lord, we in the South, right? The South is known for iced tea. And you're sitting at your table, man, I want some iced tea. And they bring it to the table and that stuff is room temperature lukewarm. <laughs> you're not going to want to taste that iced tea because it's warm tea. You'll spit that out. Why? Your expectation was for some cold iced tea. Or if you're at the same restaurant and you need some hot tea, because, man, you know, your throat is bugging, you need some hot tea. It's cold outside, some hot tea. And they bring some warm tea to your table. Man, that's disgusting. You're not drinking that. And that's the idea that's going on here, that they had an expectation for hot water and cold water, and they got neither, and they spit it out their mouth. Jesus had an expectation for this church that they would be cold or hot, meaning that they would be productive, meaning that they would be useful, meaning that he would enjoy them. Rather, when he came to taste them, they were tepid, they were lukewarm, they were uh, gross, if you will, nauseatingly lukewarm. Oh my God. So, so that's what's going on here. And Jesus calls them out. But here's the main reason, though. Here's the main reason. I told you Jesus is standing outside because they forgot who he was. The preacher wasn't preaching and leading right. The people are lukewarm. They are compromised. They are neither cold nor hot. They are not fulfilling their expectation before the Lord to live up to what they've attained in Christ. But finally, the people in the church were deceived. Look at verse 17. You've got to see verse 17. If you see nothing else, see verse 17. Jesus said to them, because you say... I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind. They're deceived. They're saying that they're one thing, but in reality, there's something else. They think they're killing the game. They think they're doing it, man, but Jesus, the one you cannot fool, Jesus, the one who cannot be mocked, because you can fool some of the people some of the time with exterior acts of so-called righteousness, but God looks at the what? The heart. And Jesus says, y'all keep saying 
y'all got it going on, but actually, y'all are broke, busted, and disgusted. Y'all are toe up from the flow up. Y'all ain't busting a grape, but yet y'all think y'all all that. Because look at it, Jesus said, y'all keep saying I'm rich. Y'all keep saying that you're wealthy. And you keep saying that you don't need anything. Oh my, anytime a Christian says, I don't need anything. Anytime a church says, we don't need anything. Why would they say something foolish like that? Because they in the money, honey. They paid, they got cash, they got bank. And when you got bank and cash and wealth, you really don't need God. Your prayer life changes when you can write a check for it. I mean, hey, you're you're depending on your riches more than you're depending on the righteous master. And so Jesus is outside the church because they don't need him on the inside of the church. They didn't got used to being their own God. That's why Jesus would say it's hard for rich folk to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Oh, man. But, but that's why it's a benefit and even it, 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 it's, a, it's an advantage to be poor many times because you know you need God to come through. And wisdom is when God has come through and, and you know he did it, you don't forget that he did it and think that somehow you did it or that it's up to you. You see, their wealth was their God. Their prosperity was their identity. Mm, mm, mm. Now, before I move on to my second point of the three, I got to stop and pause here because this is speaking to me right now. You see, the seven churches of Asia Minor They represented seven literal churches then, but also seven periods of church history. But they also represent seven kinds of churches that exist today and seven kinds of Christians that exist today. And so when I look at what's going on in Laodicea, I can't help but bring it out of 90 AD to 2021 AD and say, wow, What's going on with the church today, especially the American, evangelical, wealthy, white church in America in particular? I see a lot of traits here that I see in Laodicea. That is, they're going around saying, we are rich. We've got a lot of money. We've got a lot of resources. We've got a lot of buildings and and we are wealthy and we don't need anything because we have learned how to structure things and do things so well. We don't even need the Holy Spirit anymore. Matter of fact, if the Holy Spirit came up in some of our churches, Christians wouldn't even recognize him because they don't need him because we are so smart in and of ourselves. We're doing church on our own. We don't even recognize our need for God. We may say a little prayer, but really we know that it's up to us. Okay, that's not hitting you. Let me keep on driving down your street. I'm going to drop some mail off right here. Because this reminds me of how the American church has become caught up in Christian nationalism. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Christian nationalism. What is that? It is a form of idolatry that seeks to merge Christian and American identities, making the two inseparable 
and even synonymous. Let me go back and say that again. Christian nationalism is a form of idolatry that seeks to merge Christian and American identities, making the two inseparable and synonymous. Christian nationalism ascribes a priority and a preeminence to America that God does not. Uh God loves all of the nations. Uh, And it's not that he puts America above every other nation. Now, hold on, hold on. I got got more. I got more. Don't don't turn the station. Don't change the channel. Uh, Christian nationalism distorts both the Christian faith and America's constitutional democracy. Christian nationalism justifies and or minimizes the insurrection that occurred at the Capitol. That's what Christian nationalism does. That's what certain evangelicals do. They minimize what happened or they justify what happened or they want to jump past the atrocity of what happened and what led up to it and immediately start calling for reconciliation and unity, but they don't want to deal with repenting, confession, and owning up to the problem. They want to skip over all of that and go into a holy huddle where we hold hands and sing kumbaya. You may get that preacher, but you're not going to get this preacher because we ain't got time for that. We've been there, done that, bought the T-shirt and the hat, and nothing has come of that. We need to see some brokenness, some ownership, some repentance before we come together and quote-unquote reconcile and unify. But Christian nationalism is not looking for repentance. Christian nationalism calls people patriots who are nothing but rebels calling those people patriots. They're not patriots. They are rebels and violent extremists. These are the kind of people that wave Trump flags, hang nooses, wave Confederate flags, which is a rebel flag, all next to a sign that says Jesus saves. I'm talking about Christian nationalists who do in church without Jesus. They put his name on something, but his presence and his power and his person is not there. You can fool some of the people, some of the time. You can't even fool some unbelievers with that mess. You'll never fool God with that stuff. How you gonna have a noose out there? How you gonna have a confederate? How you gonna break into the Capitol, break the law that you keep telling my people we need to comply to the law? Then you break the law, suffer consequences, and you think, why is this happening to me? You broke the law. That's why people are going to jail right now. But how are you going to go up in there and then say a prayer and, and, and then close it in Jesus' name? And you keep talking about the white light and white light and white righteousness. That sounds like some white supremacy to me. And them few brothers that they had up in there, don't, don't count them. That, that movement always get a couple of uh, wannabes uh, coming along, you know. No, 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 that was a majority white group. Evangelicals, Christian nationalism. And here's another thing. And because of arrogant American exceptionalism, white supremacy and xenophobia are both at home with Christian nationalism. They don't want to hear about diversity with Christian nationalism. They don't want to hear about the nations because for them, America is chief. White America is chief. And I got to say one more thing. Christian nationalism is also passively anti-Semitic 
because it makes America and not Israel the focus and trigger of end time events. Let me come back. Christian nationalism is also passively anti-Semitic. Why? Because it makes America the focus. It makes America the trigger of what happens that the end times is here now because of what's going on in America, not what's going on in Israel, which is what the Bible taught. I can't even find America in the Bible. But I can find Europe and Africa, even uh, possibilities of Russia, but not America. But somehow America has become the crown jewel. And we got to call Americans out for that heresy because Christian nationalism is a cousin to the prosperity gospel. And, And you know these things are American because they don't work anywhere else but in America. You can't preach either one of these doctrines anywhere else where they work, but they only work here in America because the wealth makes it happen. Oh, my goodness. And here's nothing. Christian nationalists say it's the end of the world. Jesus is coming back because a Democrat is in office. When Obama was in office, he's the Antichrist. It's the end of the world. But when a Republican gets in who's a heathen and who's filthy, they got the nerve to call him God's anointed. And then when a Democrat wins, not only do they contest the results of the election, I I thought God was sovereign. I thought Romans 13 was real. All of a sudden now, Romans 13 don't matter. All of a sudden now, God was sleeping and and, Joe Biden got elected. How did that happen? So now your theology is jacked up just like the church that led. You don't know who God is. And your materialism, your politics is your God. And now it's the end times. Wait a minute now. Countries around the world who are surviving all kinds of atrocities and, 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 and being pillaged and murdered and dictators, those pastors aren't saying it's the end of the world. But because we got to wear a mask over here, anyway, anyway, I I, got to keep moving. I got to keep moving. Mm, mm, mm. I will say this. It is possible to value our system of government without idolizing it. We can honor our country without worshiping it. We can tell the truth about our founding fathers and still be thankful for the good things they produce, like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. But when they wrote those things, they weren't thinking about women and they weren't thinking about native and indigenous people and they surely weren't thinking about Africans who were enslaved. They were thinking about wealthy, white, Protestant men when they said all men are created equal. But, but Dr. King and others, we said, we're we going to catch you. We're we going to keep you at that word right here. You, you said all men. <laughs> that means us too. <laughs> they didn't mean that when they wrote that. And that was God slipping that thing in there to say, I'm going to work righteousness in the midst of a falling structure. So we can admit, man, the founding fathers, okay, okay. But they were slave owners. 11 of the first 15 presidents were slave owners. And don't give me that stuff that they were men in their times, because every man in that time did not agree with slavery, nor did they own slaves. Mm-hmm. They, they chose to be salty. They chose to have some light. They chose to go against the current. They just didn't line up on the bus of Christian nationalism. My God, we need some more preachers like that today. So we, we, we can accept the results of the election because we know who ultimately elects and governs from on high. So again, I ask, why was Jesus outside of his church, his own church? He was outside because they didn't need him. We don't have need of anything. 
you have need of God, which is everything. That's why the dude in Proverbs, I think it's around chapter 30, he's like, Lord, now don't, don't, don't give me too little because I might steal and dishonor your name. And, and then he said, but, and don't give me too much lest I get full and say, who is the Lord? Because God understands how we are, that we have a tendency that when we get blessed, uh, we take our eyes off God, which is why God warned Israel. Before you go into this promised land, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Before you go into the promised land and you live in houses that you didn't build, fully furnished. And before you drink out of wells that you didn't dig. I just got to encourage you, once you get there, don't forget me. And that's what happened with this church. They had so much money that they forgot Jesus. They weren't living check to check or month to month. They forgot God. Kind of like Samson when when he forgot the Lord and started becoming self-reliant. Brother went and got his hair cut in the wrong barbershop, Delilah's barbershop. And the sad thing about it was when he got up, he did not know that the power of God left him. And he tried to do what he had always done, but he couldn't do what he always did because the Lord left him when his hair was cut. And we got a lot of churches who get up and keep trying to do what they always did, not knowing that the power of the Lord left them, not knowing that Jesus is not in the church. He's outside the church knocking on the door. How long have they been in this condition? How long have they been having services? How long have they been having meetings and Jesus being outside? saying, let me come in. The Bible says in Psalm 138, verse 6, though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. If you think you got this, God will back up and say, go ahead and get that. And I know we all do that, and we got to learn the hard way. When Jesus said, for without me, you can do nothing. Talk to the person who's in a bed right now, a hospital bed, and can't tie their shoes. You see, we even take the basics for granted. That's why my ancestors, when they came out of slavery, even while they were in slavery, they would thank God for each and every day. Lord, I thank you for this day. Uh, I thank you for this food. I thank you for these clothes that are on my back. I thank you for last morning's lying down and this morning's up rising. I thank you that you gave me strength to pick cotton in the field that don't belong to me. They had thanks. They had an understanding of where their help came from. Amos, the prophet, had to say to Israel, he says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Your blessings have lulled you into a place of comfortability and compromise and complacency and self-reliance. And God says, I'm backing off. I know you're from afar because it's all about you. It's not about me. It's about you. It's about your brand. It's about your name. It's not about me. Because if it was about me, you would be broken. You would be humble. That's why Micah the prophet said that if we're going to walk with God, we got to do so humbly. Who do we think we are? As soon as we get a little something, we think we own something. No, God. Paul said, man, I count it all dung. It's all dung, man. Any accomplishment that I get, it's all dung. Any success that we have, it's all dung. And it's by the grace of God. It's not up to me. 
But let me move quickly. Secondly, what should they do to let Jesus back into his own church? Well, in verse 18, it says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Jesus, what, what do we have to do to, to let you back into your own church? Number one, you got to start doing business with me. He says, I counsel you to buy gold from me that's been refined in the fire. Because you out there in the stock market, <laughs> you out there dealing with all this stuff that's going on with the uh, video game, GameStop stuff. You, you watching the stocks and you, and ain't nothing wrong with that. But just don't put your hope in all of that. And everything they do, it's about their medical school that they had in Laodicea. Man, these folks were so smart, they came up with a special eye medicine. Uh, these people, man, were so good that they had a clothing textile industry there where they developed this special black wool. So they had it going on. They had an elaborate banking system. I already told you about the aqueduct and water system, but somehow they were just like Flint, Michigan, because the water there was, was dirty, but they just had money to try to pipe in clean water, but it just came in lukewarm. So these people are, they're advanced. But Jesus said, uh, Y'all need to do business with me. <laughs> Y'all been leaving me out of your business for too long. Uh, I counsel you to buy gold from me. I, I counsel you to, to, to let me clothe you with these white heavenly garments, which is a representation of your practical righteousness. Uh, let me put some eye salve on your eyes because the stuff you're using isn't working. I want to give you some true riches. I want to give you a true healing. I want to give you a true outfit. You got to do some business with me. You got to include me. So start doing business with me. Also, receive my loving rebuke and chastening in verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So how do I get him back in? Receive his rebuke and chastening. <laughs> In other words, Jesus is coming straight at you. Don't duck him. Accept it. Uh, like David, man after God's own heart, I am the man. I, I, I have sinned before God. Not making excuses, not deflecting and blaming Antifa or blaming the Democrats or blaming uh, BLM. No, I did it. Not my daddy's fault, not my mama's fault, not the preacher's fault. It's my fault. And I receive your loving correction and your rebuke. Because you love me enough, you love me enough to tell me the truth about myself, Jesus. So I'm listening to what you have to say to me, and I'm not making any excuses. The fact that you're chastening me means that I'm one of your children and I'm going to learn my lesson from the spanking. Then Jesus says also in verse uh, uh, 19, therefore be zealous and repent. So the only things we repent from is sin. Church, y'all been sinning. Repent, turn from your wicked ways. Be zealous about that to show that you are really sorry like Zacchaeus who got his wealth by robbing folk. He was zealous enough to say to Jesus without Jesus even saying anything to him about, he said, Lord, I'm going to go over and pay everybody back that I stole from. That's the sign of a broken and contrite spirit. My God. So this church, Jesus said, man, y'all be zealous and repent. Then he says in verse 20, 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice. So what should this church do to let Jesus back in? Start doing business with him. Receive his loving rebuke and chastening. Be zealous and repent and hear the Lord's voice again. Jesus is calling. Not only is he knocking, he's calling. Saying, let me back in. But the question is, do you recognize his voice? Or have you been away from him so long, you don't recognize his voice anymore? You ever play games with your kids and, and, and you may put a cover over your head or stand on one side of the door and you start talking? They may not be able to see you, but they hear you and they know that it's dad. You know, you may have been away from him, but when he starts calling and you start repenting, you can hear his voice again. I like how in the Bible, when Jesus would call people, he would sometimes not only call them by their name, he'd repeat their name. Simon, Simon, Mary, Mary, Martha, Martha. He, he, he call your name. My sheep know my voice. He's calling you, saying, we ain't talking about the church right now. You've put Jesus outside of your life because you've become successful. You, you, you'd have made some money. You're doing some stuff. And you haven't heard the Lord talk to you in a minute, but he's still knocking and he's still calling. And the proof that you are one of his sheep is that sooner, as opposed to later, you're going to open up that door and let him in. If you don't open up that door, you just may only prove that you are not a sheep, but in fact, you are a goat. Oh my good pastor, you're scaring me. Good. I pray that God will scare the hell out of you. You've been out there too long. You've been away too long. And ain't nothing out there anyway because in a couple of weeks I'm going to talk about when you drink from the Lord because he extends the invitation to come and drink. No one or nothing can satisfy your soul the way Jesus does. So the most miserable person is the person who's out there long gone in the world living like the world when they've been born from above. You're miserable out there. And God has said, come back. Come on back, my Lord. So that church was encouraged not only to hear the Lord's voice, but to open the doors of the church, their hearts to Jesus again. Because he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, you, you, you got to do something. My grace is wooing you and draw, but you've got to open. You've got to respond. You've got to draw near to God. You've got to obey. You've got to do something. You've got to open the door, which is a sign of saying, I yield to you, oh God, because we have a gracious God. He'll knock on the door, but he ain't going to knock that door down. He is not going to force himself into his own church. He's not going to force himself into the life of a professing Christian. He's so glorious. He's like, you ought to want me just because of who I am. I don't have to force myself on you. You ought to be on your face and knees thanking me that I want to have a relationship with you. But he ain't going to force himself on you. You've got to, I've got to open the door. Finally, finally, finally. What are the benefits of letting Jesus back into his own church? Look at verse 21. No, no, I'm going to go back to verse 20. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What are the benefits of letting him back in? Oh, man. Number one, they will have the satisfaction of proving to Jesus that they are overcomers in practice and not just in position. What I mean by that is when Jesus says in verse 20, to him who overcomes, that, that you will overcome. When you open that door up and you allow me to come and sit down with you and dine with you, that, that is a benefit also of opening the door, that the Eastern culture of table fellowship that when God comes back in and he sits at the table with you and he dines with you, that's speaking of the fact that he has accepted you, he's accepted me. Remember when Jesus restored Peter who had denied the Lord three times? Jesus first sat down and had a meal with him. He cooked breakfast for the guys. And then he took Peter aside and said, Simon, do you love me? So, so Jesus said, let me eat with you because you can't reject people that you eat with. And so by dining with them, he's saying, I forgive you. I accept you. What a benefit. And because of that now, you can overcome. And the proof that you have overcome is that you let him in the house and he becomes Lord of the house. Not only that, Jesus will grant them to sit with him on his throne. Verse 21. He says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. So, so, so here, here, here's something incredible. He says, uh, y'all were messing it up, stinking it up, but because you've repented, because you've opened the door, because you have dined with me and me with you, now that you're overcoming, I'm going to now promote you just like he did with Peter. I want you to feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. I'm going to promote because that's what grace does. Grace gives people who don't deserve anything, everything. I'm going to promote you even though you don't qualify on paper, but your qualification is not based on what you do. It's based on who I am, the one who calls the unqualified. Grace puts you in that position. I'm going to give you a promotion. Here's a throne for you. And that may speak of the millennial kingdom when the church rules with Jesus Christ for a thousand years on the earth. When Paul says we're going to be judging demons, when Paul says we're going to be over nations. So Jesus says, people who messed up, I'm going to give a seat, a throne. But look at this, look at this, look at this. Is there a throne in your future? Or is there throw up in your future? That's what you're talking about, that's gross. Jesus says, I will vomit you, I, I will throw you up but he is graciously giving them another choice, another opportunity to be victorious as opposed to being like vomit. <laughs> How can I not serve a God like this? <laughs> I don't deserve a seat anywhere except in hell. I made my bed in hell. <laughs> But he called me up out of there, man. Put my feet on a rock and established my goings. Changed my name. Changed my identity. Changed my future. He graced me. <laughs> so in conclusion, man, it's sad to see Jesus standing outside of his own church saying, let me come in. Man, that, that, that's sad. 
That's so sad. But again, the grace of God shows up because as he's knocking on the door, he didn't walk away from the church. That's grace. Because he meant it when he said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You didn't want me around, so I'm not in the church, but I'm still outside knocking. I ain't going to leave you, even though you left me. But here's more grace, though. He says, I will vomit you out, which means he hadn't done it yet. So he's giving us, he's giving them more time to get it right. Jesus' love for the church is greater than the church's compromise. Jesus' love is greater than the Laodiceans' compromise. And if love kept Jesus hanging on the cross, then love kept him standing outside the church, knocking on the door and saying, let me come in. Love kept him on the cross and love kept him outside knocking and calling because our God always wins us back with love, not law, with grace, never guilt, with mercy and not mandates. How can you not serve? His love is calling us back. But what would the church of Laodicea do with all that love, mercy, and grace? Man, we don't know. We, we, we don't know if they heard the Lord or not. The Bible doesn't tell us. But let's not talk about them right now. What about you? What about me? What about us? Do we hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches? For those of us who have pushed Jesus to the margins, become self-reliant, self-dependent, self-centered, American-centered. We need to let him back in. We need to repent. We need to remember who he is. We, man, we got to go back to the basics. The love of Jesus is calling, and he's encouraging you to open the door. asked a friend of mine to come and put a cap on this for us. Brother Jason, talk to us. Nothing will ever be the 
Jason, thank you for reminding us that our loving Savior is calling us home. He's asking to be let back in to his own church, into his own temple. Because if you're a Christian, your body is the temple of the Lord. Revelation has given us some descriptive and figurative language that we can all wrap our heads and our hearts around and to ask ourselves, where are we? Most importantly, where is Jesus? Aren't you glad that he wants to dine with you? Aren't you glad that he wants to fellowship with you and even have a promotion in store for you? But you have to make a choice and repent. You have to be zealous and receive his chastening. You have to humble yourself where you've been prideful and self-reliant and putting emphasis on your material things as opposed to the God who's blessed you with all things. What I love about God, again, his grace knows no end. 
when he says that he's the beginning of creation, I think that can bless you and bless me right now because that means he can create a new day, a new beginning, a new memory. He's going to create a brand new heavens and a new earth. Can he create a new world for you and for me? Worlds that we messed up, worlds that we brought shame and degradation into, confusion into, because we've gone astray, we've been bullheaded. But when we wake up, when we repent, he can press reset and create anew. He wants to do that with you. If there's someone out there, and of course, if you don't know Jesus, let him into your life. And then once you do that, say, 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 Lord, come on in, Jesus. Be my Savior. Be my God. And then just go tell somebody. You can email us. Let us know, man. But just go tell somebody. But again, if you're a Christian, he's been outside. Let him in. And if you've been subscribing to Christian nationalism, white supremacist thought and ideologies that you've been under so long, you just thought that that was the kingdom of God. But maybe God broke through today and you have said, wait a minute, something's wrong. That can't be Jesus. Come out from there. Get out of that church. Go to another church. That's not only going to value and honor Jesus, but it's going to welcome all people and love them well with the love of Jesus. I leave you with this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace, beloved, and have an awesome day. See ya.